This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. So before I get into sort of preventive measures, I want to go over how prevalent diabetes actually is in the United States of America. Um, looking at 1996 map of diabetes, it, uh, the prevalence of those diagnosed with diabetes doesn't seem to be very high back in 1996. Um, and just so you know, the darker the color, the more the, the prevalence. So 1996 map looks kind of yellow. Going to 1999, it starts spreading more across America. Look at the orange on the bottom. Gets worse by 2002. And this is all CDC um, uh, documented um, prevalence of diabetes in U.S. adults. 2005, it gets uglier. Looks like the East Coast is not doing well, neither is the South. And then, oh, California comes in, and um, it starts to get darker and darker. So the darker, the worse, the higher the percentage of those with diabetes. Um, And by 2010, it's just spreading. In 2012, um, we see a higher percentage, darker areas of the map, and that's because they had newer methods of of surveilling people with diabetes. Um, They were able to make phone calls to patients, and uh, some of that is adjusted for by the newer ways of actually surveying people. 2014 just doesn't look good. You you can pretty much say everyone, there's someone somewhere in the United States of America with diabetes. So diabetes, as you see, is is pretty widespread across the U.S. Um, And uh, I think the recognition of it is is not as high as, as, say, something like breast cancer. Everybody knows about breast cancer, right? It's, we think it's the worst thing, and we've got so much awareness surrounding it, the pink ribbon, the walks, uh, there's so much surrounding it. But looking at the five-year mortality rate of someone with breast cancer versus someone who has an ulcer or an amputation or even arterial disease, which are all sequelae of diabetes, it, it doesn't look so good when you compare it to something like prostate cancer or breast cancer. Um, even colon cancer. And, and really, um, I think the issue with, with this is that the, the disease state that we, we treat every day and we see the consequences of just doesn't have the support or um, uh, the people rallying behind it to really bring awareness to this issue. Um, the five-year mortality rate of, of this disease process and the sequelae of what can happen is pretty high. Um, so perhaps this is the time to change our discussion with our healthcare administrators and really rally behind this and, and try and get diabetes, which is a disease that can be controlled under better control. So why is prevention important? Um, I think there's a psychological, functional burden associated with, with the disease, and there's also a financial burden. So Diabetes, the systemic illness alone, um, isn't quite what we're talking about today. It's, it's the things that can happen to you. Um, a, a wound can develop in a patient with diabetes, and eventually it can lead to an amputation. And every 30 seconds, there is someone undergoing an amputation due to, due to a complication of diabetes. Um, and the, 
the functional burden associated with it is pretty high. I mean, those patients may undergo a leg amputation, which can take them really off their feet. There's also um, a financial burden associated with it. Um, so say you just have a very uncomplicated ulcer on your foot. You know, that the cost associated with that uh, was determined to be about $3,000 um, in 2010. However, the more complicated the ulcer gets or at least an amputation, um, the cost associated with that can be as high as $100,000. Um, and on top of that, the, the length of stay in a hospital uh, for an admission of someone with diabetic foot ulcer can be 59% longer. Um, and that's, that's a huge problem in our county facilities where you know, we have uh, conditions where we can't admit patients anymore because there's no space. Um, we're, we're dealing with a lot of issues surrounding discharging and actually um, getting these patients out. So all in all, I think the whole point is that prevention is better um, overall than having to treat the disease and the consequences of the disease. So what are some risk factors that can increase your risk for an ulceration or an amputation? Anyone who's undergone any form of amputation, an ulceration, um, peripheral neuropathy, which is lack of sensation, any kind of foot deformity, PAD, such as arterial disease, um, having kidney disease associated with diabetes, not controlling your sugars, and smoking cigarettes. This is just a simple list that you can sort of think about. So let's go over some of these risk factors. Neuropathy. Have you heard of neuropathy? Have you seen the commercials, Lyrica, Gabapentin? Um, neuropathy, essentially, it, there's three forms of it. Uh, one is sensory loss, which is essentially no sensation to the foot. Um, starts with the feet, can affect the hands. Um, so someone will step on something sharp or develop a blister and never really know about it. I mean, we see patients coming in with needles in their feet, uh, nails in the foot. They just don't feel it. So the higher the sugar, the worse the control of your diabetes, the higher the consequences of this. There's an autonomic neuropathy, which is essentially the dryness and cracking of the skin. So you can try as hard as you want to lotion it, but your body just doesn't produce enough secretion to make it moist. So they, they get dryness and cracking, which, which causes them to be at risk for ulcerations as well. Uh, the next kind of neuropathy that they develop is called motor neuropathy. Essentially, the muscles of the foot aren't functioning as well. And so one muscle overpowers another, and they develop these hammer toes and deformities of the foot, which essentially creates pressure points, which are hot spots, um, that prevents them from wearing the shoes that you and I can wear. Or you, they'll wear the shoes, they'll walk around, they'll develop a blister, but just never know it. So seeing your podiatrist is very important. Um, we do tests in office where we essentially can determine if you have neuropathy and how bad it is. Um, this device that you see is, is called um, the monofilament. Essentially, it's like a fishing wire that we use. And uh, most healthy people can feel the fishing wire on the bottom of their foot, but someone with peripheral neuropathy won't feel that on the bottom of the foot, and then that they will fail this test. So if, if 
you do fail this test, essentially you're at high risk for, for a complication from the diabetes. We also assess your joint mobility. So we look for these hammer toes or stiffness of joints. Those are all areas, again, that can become hot spots. Um, and if you wear bad shoes with a deformity like that, um, you're certainly at risk for developing an ulceration. So our, uh, Artie will go into some of the shoe gear things that um, patients like who have diabetes will wear, but you can't wear the same shoes that everybody else wears. So we make special shoes for our diabetic patients. Um, so to kind of round up everything we just talked about, neuropathy we learned about is, is bad. It's, it's a 78% factor in patients developing ulcers. Trauma, trauma doesn't have to be you know, a car accident. It's essentially wearing shoes on a foot that has deformity. That is called minor trauma on the foot. Um, such as something simple as taking a hot bath. Um, you're not going to be able to feel the pressure of the, or the temperature of the water, and you can cause a thermal or, or burn on the foot. And those are all combined together can cause an ulcer on the foot. So what does an ulcer look like on, on a diabetic patient? They're typically seen um, on pressure points, such as the bottom of the foot, um, they're pretty healthy. The base is red and, and healthy. They have a really thick rim of callus around it, and they tend to have pretty good circulation. And this is a typical diabetic foot ulcer. So this patient does not feel this wound on the bottom of their foot at all. And they'll walk around with this for a while and not know it. So inspection of the bottom of their feet is key. Um, and if they're aware of their diabetes, making sure that they have someone inspected, whether it's their podiatrist or family member. So this is a typical diabetic foot ulcer. So how do we treat these patients? So as we talked about, it's, it's over pressure points, and it, uh, so really the key thing is to take the pressure off. So we offload the patients with proper shoes, um, and we do some wound care. We'll shave off that thick rim of callus to allow the good skin to come across. Um, we provide wound care. So, you know, the simplest way to think about wound care is if a wound is really dry, we try to provide moisture. If it's too moist, we will take away some of that moisture and essentially create a healthy balance that will allow the wound to heal. Um, here's... Here's a pretty drastic way of treating uh, a diabetic foot ulcer. Um, the thing you see uh, on the right is a total contact cast. Essentially, it's an entire foot and leg cast that uh, will distribute the pressure of the body's weight as you walk all across the bottom of the foot, as opposed to one certain spot, which is on the ball of the foot. Um, if patients can tolerate the cast, we'll put them in the boot, um, which is not as great, but it's, you know, at least it allows you to take it on and off and, and shower if needed um, and kind of do what you need to do on a normal day. So any questions before I move on to sort of the next part of this? Yes. You mentioned nutritional supplements. Yeah. Uh, so nutritional supplements, um, for the wound, there's things that we can apply, but for the, for the body, like vitamins that you can take, like zinc, um, vitamin A, vitamin C, and zinc, those are all things that help the wound to heal faster. Yes. 
He asked me to explain what distal, anterior, those terms mean on a foot. Um, so let me go back to the picture of the foot. Um, so if you're looking at a foot, this is considered distal. On the outside? Distal is essentially is anything that's away from the body. So distal is anything that's away from the body. So it's proximal, it's close to the ankle joint, for example. Distal is away. It's not a specific bottom or top location. It's just um, away or close to, say, your ankle joint. Does that make sense? Okay. So clearly we've determined this is a big problem, and... um, Uh, Being at the county facility, this is a huge problem that we face uh, with our patients. And so we decided that um, the best way to treat uh, this problem is that we all come together as one service and try and uh, do it in one setting. So we created the functional limb service to help um, coordinate this effort for our our patients. I'll skip over these statistics, but again, um, just so we can quickly go over this again, um, you know, diabetes isn't the only thing that can cause lower extremity amputations. Um, Trauma is also one of the higher um, percentages of leading to amputations, and being at uh, San Francisco General, we're the level one trauma center, so we see healthy patients that undergo amputations, and we see sick patients that undergo amputations. But the two of them are one of the higher percentages of causes of of amputations. So um, those patients who don't have diabetes but may have circulatory issues because of smoking or high cholesterol, um, they're also pretty prevalent. Um, There's 8 million Americans who are affected with arterial disease, and that's essentially clogged up arteries that doesn't allow flow to the extremity. Um, Half of those patients don't know about it, and there's half who come in with pain, gangrene, ulcers that aren't healing. Um, So when it's really severe in its form, it tends to have some kind of gangrene or or really bad pain at rest that just doesn't go away. So what are risk factors for, for having arterial disease or poor circulation? So anyone who's greater than 50 years of age or has a family history of arterial disease, heart disease, or stroke, um, having heart disease or stroke, smoking, diabetes, obesity, kind of a sedentary lifestyle, or high cholesterol. So this this kind of is a good list uh, to think of for anyone who is at risk for developing circulatory issues. So... Talking about amputations alone, diabetes, we know, is the leading cause of non-traumatic amputations, so those who don't have a car accident or something. Um, and those people, people with diabetes are 15 times more likely to require a major amputation than someone who doesn't have diabetes. And a major amputation is essentially an amputation below the knee. And we know that 85% of all amputations in a diabetic had an ulceration before. So we've identified the problem is a foot ulcer. We just have to learn how to prevent it and make sure that patients are complying with the treatment. Yes? I don't have any data to present, but I can tell you just from experience that um, lower economic status 
tends to be lead to higher risks of having diabetes and foot ulcerations due to um, access to food and care. Um, so we find that our patients tend to have a unhealthier lifestyle as far as what they eat and their access to food, um, which tends to put them at higher risk for um, diabetes. Um, so the prognosis isn't good after you have one amputation. Up to 20% of those patients who had a leg amputation, they're at risk, 20% of them are at risk for the other leg undergoing an amputation within one year. And up to 51% will undergo an amputation within five years. And, and those numbers are, are pretty predictable, and we see it day in, day out in our practice. And the mortality rate, I think, is the most astonishing number that you see, that before any kind of amputation, the mortality rate is about 5.8%. And after a lower extremity amputation, within five years, their mortality rate is, is up to 68%. And, and it's not the amputation necessarily that leads to this mortality rate. It's the more sedentary lifestyle that the patients um, develop, and their lung reserve and heart capacity is much um, it's different. It's changed. And so they're, they're at much higher risk of death. So... There's a lot of different countries who've said this is a problem. It's not just a problem we have here. Um, so everyone is trying to come up with solutions. In Sweden, an interdisciplinary team came together and said this is a huge problem. And they were able to um, lower their um, uh, amputation rates by approximately uh, 57% within the first four years of developing a team that worked together to provide education and care for these patients together. Um, in Spain, similar idea um, came across where they were having the same problems. So they created an interdisciplinary team, and their major amputation rates decreased by 67% uh, through the clinics and, and, and the education they were able to provide their patients. Same thing in the UK, um, same teams formed again, and they were able to reduce their incidence of major amputations by 62%. We don't quite have uh, the same statistics or groups forming together in the US, um, but there's multiple organizations that are working on creating standard of care and algorithms that we can all adhere to um, here in the US. And I'll quickly just touch on um, other reasons for why someone can develop an amputation. That is trauma, uh, which is something that our functional limb service um, addresses. And, um, you know, we do see a lot of um, traumatic amputations at our facility, uh, whether it's from motor vehicle crash or motorcycle crash, pedestrian versus auto. Um, really, um, the incidence is high with lower extremity amputations affects males primarily, um, and the most common level of amputation we see is below the knee. And that number is projected to increase. Um, in 2005, um, it's from where it was in 2005, it's projected to double. And, and that uh, increase is, is impacted by the increase in life expectancy that we're seeing amongst our population. So, um, as I mentioned, we're a level one trauma center at Zuckerberg San Francisco General, and you know, we, we definitely have the core group of people that have come together um, 
including our physical medicine rehab, our orthopedic surgeon, vascular surgeon, podiatrists, plastic surgeons, prosthetists, physical therapists, nurses, infectious disease. It really takes a village to address this problem. And believe it or not, on a Wednesday afternoon, we hold a clinic where um, majority of these team members are present and um, help coordinate care in one setting. Because imagine this patient has undergone an amputation and has to go to 10 different appointments to deal with one problem, and we're asking them not to walk on it, not to be so active on this extremity. So we have to come together in one place to try and address it in one setting. So the goal of our, our care is prevention. So prevention, prevention, prevention is key and identifying those patients early. Um, and we provide enough education that we hope that we can change the course of their um, outcome. Um, we provide inpatient consultations, outpatient clinics, as we talked about. Um, we have a peer mentor and support group um, that meets monthly, and we, we bring everyone together who's undergone an amputation. We have amputees provide support to those who may have undergone an amputation recently or are considering it. And I'm going to play a little video for you of a patient experience that we had. All across San Francisco, new ground is being broken to improve the care of amputees, led by the UCSF San Francisco General Hospital Orthopedic Trauma Institute. The clinicians at the OTI have established a functional limb service and are producing a patient tutorial video series. These videos will highlight the patient experience at every stage of the recovery process. They will help to educate and inform expectations for those who have suffered traumatic limb injury and limb loss. Patients will get to see how the process of getting a new prosthetic limb works and will be given an idea of what to expect as they begin working with their prosthetist. They will get a chance to see how their new limb is made and how it's customized specifically to them. They'll see patients, just like themselves, take strides toward reclaiming the mobility and independence of their pre-amputation lives. They'll get to hear patients, past and present, share their experiences and advice. Like, you know, it's something I, I was not expecting, I was not expecting, was not, was not thinking, you know, that this was going to happen. And, and when I actually stood up, I mean, it was all I, all I could do not, not, to, not to just, just start bawling. All the emotions of, of, of the reality of it, you know, of, of, actually, of actually standing up and realizing that life was about to change, you know, and that life is changing. It's not about to, it is changing. Um, that was a huge moment, you know, huge moment there. The videos will also offer easily accessible tutorials on all aspects of living with a prosthetic limb. This series will feature glimpses on what to expect from the rehabilitation portion of treatment and will provide basic physical therapy tutorials. Finally, former patients will share their success stories, inspiring present and future patients as they travel on their own road to recovery. The physical therapists and the occupational therapists are some of the best people you're ever going to meet. 
So they're going to push you. They're going to ask you to do things that maybe you don't want to do or are not comfortable for you to do. But the better, the more you can work with them, the more they will work for you. A, a smile, a please and a thank you, um, an appreciation of what they do. It's amazing what, what it will. It makes their day better. It makes your day better. Um, so looking at the non-doctors on the list, I would say obviously um, our physical therapists are key in, in, in getting our patients through rehab and out in the community. Um, we, we need to have nurse and team coordinators. Oftentimes, these patients need to be reminded of their appointments, and, and if, if they fall through the cracks, we, we are essentially their guides as to uh, getting them back in, uh, on track and making sure that they're in attendance. Nutritionist is key. I think um, improving diet and, and what to eat and what not to eat is, is something that we as surgeons don't have the time nor the knowledge to sit down and, and discuss, and I think you certainly need to have that team member. Um, social services, I think, is, is probably the thing that, that it's underestimated. Um, you know, these patients need to have um, um, help with transportation to appointments, assistance at home with devices, things that, that really can make or break, I think, any amputation or the course of this patient. Um, and, you know, th those are some of the key members that I think that you cannot function without. And it doesn't necessarily require, I could do the best amputation on a foot, but if the patient doesn't have the resources they need when they go home or the ability to make it to appointments, that, that amputation is going to fail. So um, really, it, 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 when I tell you it takes a village, I, I mean that it does. It, it requires every single team member that you see up here. Yes. So we encourage our patients with diabetes um, to not trim their own nails. Um, oftentimes, because of the lack of sensation, uh, what they will do is trim skin versus nails, and that uh, break in this tissue can cause an infection to develop. So we provide those services um, where we will see them on a regular basis. Oftentimes, it's a three-month follow-up for nail care, and, and we, we take care of it on our end. Um, so I encourage those with diabetes to not try to trim their own nails, just because you, can, you, you don't feel tissue from nail, and you can cause a wound. I'm going to have uh, Dr. Parks come on up and do his presentation. Um, like Dr. Dini said, my name is Charles Parks. Um, I grew up in the Bay Area, and I uh, just recently um, started my, my position with um, UCSF at uh, mainly the Orthopedic Trauma Institute. Today I'll kind of talk uh, a little bit uh, similar, um, touch some bases that Dr. Dini just spoke on, and uh, kind of diabetes and, the, uh, and limb disorders and kind of things of what happens when, goes, when things go wrong. So um, diabetes, um, there's two chronic types of uh, diabetes. Um, both are, like I said, chronic. Type 1 is a condition where the pancreas uh, usually produces little to no insulin, and it's usually uh, diagnosed in children or young adults, and it's about 5% of uh, diabetics. Type 2 is definitely the most common uh, type. It's, a, um, again, a chronic condition that affects the way the uh, body uh, pro uh, processes blood uh, glucose, blood sugar. Um, both type 1 and type 2 um, have a, a negative effect on the uh, other systems of the body. Um, so 
the um, controlling of the, of the blood sugars is the most important um, part to kind of decrease the the um, complications of diabetes. Anyone with, like I said, type 1 or type 2 can be affected, um, kind of affect other systems of the body. Um, so th- three very common um, uh, things that we see. One is a retinopathy. It uh, has to do with uh, it affects your vision, your eyesight. And it's usually caused by um, damage to the uh, small blood vessels of the uh, light-sensitive tissue in the eye called the retina. Um, it can cause anywhere from a mild um, vision impairment to uh, complete blindness. It's actually the leading cause of blindness. Um, nephropathy, um, nephropathy meaning a kidney disease. It's another complication um, of diabetes that affects your kidneys, like I said. It's a progressive disease usually caused by damage to the blood vessels, to the kidneys, uh, glomeruli, which are the uh, filtration units of the kidneys. So damage uh, decreases the ability of the kidneys um, um, ability to f- filter out the waste products. Um, and uh, leading cause of chronic kidney disease, so kidney disease that lasts um, th- for the rest of the, uh, the life, and then it's responsible for the end stage of renal disease of up to a 40%, um, usually having people go on dialysis, so having a machine uh, filter out all the waste products. A big, um, a big complication um, Dr. Dini spoke upon was um, peripheral neuropathy. Um, so like, like we said earlier, it's a, it's a nerve uh, damage that occurs with uh, diabetics. Um, most common uh, complication associated um, with diabetes is up to 50% of diabetics have it. The higher the blood uh, glucose, it can injure kind of the nerve fibers throughout your body, and it uh, most commonly... Um, starts in the longest uh, nerves, which are down to the feet and then to the hands. So people first start feeling kind of burning, numbness, tingling in the feet. Um, and then they, uh, if it continues with high blood sugars, it can also affect kind of hand their hand. Um. So once um, the sensation is lost, uh, there is a higher increase uh, for injury to the skin and, and ulcers to uh, start because you can't tell if you have an increased pressure point or... or um, a blister that forms, um, or even if you uh, step on something. Um, so another uh, process is um, arthrosclerosis, or peripheral artery disease. Um, it's a condition that's similar to coronary artery disease, where it's just a blockage of the arteries that supply um, blood flow. Um, peripheral vascular disease, or peripheral artery disease, um, is when the blood flow to the uh, lower extremity is uh, decreased because of a blockage. Um, it can start with um, something as simple as cramping when you're walking, and when you kind of rest, it comes back. It's because you're losing some blood flow to the muscles, and when you're walking, you increase the demand of the um, oxygen, um, which is supplied by the blood. Um, and then it can go all the way up to a critical limb ischemia, which is um, where there's uh, no blood flow to the leg or to the, to the uh, uh, lower extremity. Um, these pictures are, are a little grotesque, um, but um, you, have, you see like ischemic ulcers or gangrene, um, and at this point, it's um, necessary for an amputation, um, but uh, the, before an amputation is, is um, performed, we have to have our, our partners of the vascular surgery service to uh, come and determine, um, to improve the blood flow, and then to kind of 
determine, we can then determine where the uh, level of amputation will actually heal. So if we just made an incision on, say, the bottom foot to cut, out the, uh, to cut off the gangrene, uh, most likely what would happen is that the incision we made would um, then necrose or, or not heal, um, causing further tissue loss. So again, here's a little chart um, for kind of risks of uh, uncontrolled diabetes. So again, uh, polyneuropathy, so just uh, different types of neuropathy that we uh, have um, that can affect the, the uh, feet and the hands. Um, so like Dr. Dini said, um, autonomic neuropathy is when you um, kind of lose the secretions and your skin gets, uh, gets um, dry and cracked, um, which can cause an opening and then cause an um, infection if it uh, doesn't heal. Um, sensitive or sensory neuropathy, again, increased pressures can um, create an ulcer that way. Um, and then motor neuropathy, um, you uh, get the kind of deformities of the muscle wasting or, or kind of muscle uh, death and um, start kind of getting the, the deformities, which causes the increased pressure, and then that can cause um, ulcers from the increased pressure. And then on the other side, is the arthrosclerosis or the peripheral vascular disease, again, causing decreased blood flow um, and then can cause gangrene or ischemic ulcers. So what is an ulcer? So um, this is, uh, like Dr. Dini um, kind of touched on, too, it's a, it's a common uh, diabetic foot ulcer or neuropathic ulcer, meaning you can't feel the pressure. Um, happens at an uh, increased pressure point. It's an open sore wound, which is slow to heal. It occurs in about 15% of patients with diabetes. Um, those who are, uh, develop a foot ulcer, about 6% of them will be hospitalized to infection or other uh, related complications. Um, diabetes is, again, the leading cause of non-traumatic lower extremity amputations. Um, about 66% of non-traumatic amputations are in diabetics, and one-third of diabetics with a foot <laughs> ulcer require some type of amputation. Um, foot ulcers precede about 85% of, of the, the um, related amputations, of diabetic-related amputations. And uh, research does show that um, development of a foot ulcer is preventable, so these things are um, preventable. And that's why the kind of multidisciplinary team is so important. So something that can happen um, is an infection. So the longer an ulcer is open, um, the higher chance, a higher risk of infection um, or likelihood of an infection will occur. So there's two kind of types of infection. One is a cellulitis or a skin infection, and the other one is a bone infection or osteomyelitis, it's called. Um, on the, your left, uh, cellulitis is a skin infection usually uh, caused by a bacteria. It can spread fairly quickly, if not treated, and it can cause systemic, meaning whole body, um, infection. Um, depending on the severity, either oral antibiotics, antibiotics you take by mouth, or, or IV antibiotics, that's uh, given through an IV in um, a hospital is needed. Um, on the other side... The bone infection is one of the most kind of oldest uh, recorded diseases dating all the way back to Hippocrates. Um, you use terms like necrosis or boil of the bone were used until 1884. Dr. Nielsen described osteomyelitis. Um, it, again, it's usually in, uh, caused by a bacteria. Um, antibiotics alone cannot um, clear a bone infection. So then um, usually 
a combination of antibiotics and a surgery, so amputation is needed at that point. So amputations, um, uh, kind of a shocking uh, a statistic. So is, is according to the International Working Group a diet, uh, on diabetics, a leg is lost somewhere in the United States, or somewhere in the world, I mean, um, every 30 seconds, and 50% of the amputations are secondary to infection. Um, diabetic foot ulcers are a major uh, cause of morbidity and mortality. Um, so the level of amputation really depends on the level of infection, the level of blood flow, because um, that's going to kind of determine the healing potential, and then the uh, functionality of the amputation as well. So um, if we amputate um, and leave a foot that's not functional, um, it really won't help the uh, patient really get back to their kind of activities of day- daily living or being an independent, um, independent person which I think is important. Um, so starting with the kind of smallest and, um, and uh, um, amputation um, of a, is a toe. So we can do either the uh, partial toe amputation or a total toe amputation. And in the toes, the um, kind of diagram in the bottom left, you can see that the smaller toes have three bones and the big toe has uh, two bones. So the partial toe amputation, also known as the terminal symes, is um, is a part of is just part of the toe is amputated. Um, it's a very uh, goal that we try to do is to leave the base of the toes because you have the um, muscle attachments there, so it'll still um, allow a function and and um, and also. Having a lesser toe um, with a partial amputation, it it gives kind of a spacer. So then you don't have you have less a chance of other toes kind of migrating or um, migration of other toes. Um, again, with the uh, the big toe, the hallux, it's kind of the uh, captain of the ship. So we want to try to leave the uh, as much of it as possible, especially um, the first ray. It's called so the um, kind of inside of your foot, the big toe, and the bone behind it, the metatarsal. Um, you it really function as, as a, a lot of uh, weight-bearing and, and a lot of balance. So if we can leave the base of it with some muscle attachments, the um, ability to ambulate um, um, without, an, without um, many issues is, is much better. And then the lesser toes have a, lesser, has a smaller chance of, of taking on more of the force and causing more pressure. Um, a total toe amputation is all the way back at the big joint, um, so pretty much behind the, the knuckle behind the toe. Um, and that's also a viable option. Um, the level of the amputation really depends on where the infection is and then what part of uh, tissue we can um, salvage to uh, have a, a good closure. Um, the hard part of our job is to um, talk, about, talk to people that have multiple toe amputations, and it's a recurring problem, and then you know whether they have uh, two or three toes left, and then we, have, we recommend... A, a more proximal, so instead of a distal meaning the end of the foot or the end of the toes, um, taking away all the toes, which is an amputation I'll talk about later, um, because the goal, like I said, is really a functional foot. So another type of amputation is called a ray resection. Um, a ray meaning the toe and then part of the uh, metatarsal bone behind the um, toe. Um, 
This, uh, again, like I said before, the level of the uh, amputation really depends on the infection and the, the skin and tissues that are, are available. And as you can see on the, the top two photos, the second toe is um, infected, so the amputation was performed, which was a ray resection. And um, if you look at it quickly on the right, you don't really, can't really notice that a toe is gone. Um, it's a very uh, durable amputation. It's easily to fit in shoes with minor modifications. It causes a narrowing of the foot, which can increase uh, pressure points. Um, but the pressure, the increased pressure can re be relieved uh, with um, kind of special molded um, shoes and inserts. Um, the good thing about these uh, amputations are it leaves the length of the foot, um, which uh, helps with uh, gait and ambulation. <clears throat> Excuse me. Again, like I said, with just the toes, but if par um, multiple partial rays are performed, um, amputations are performed, the kind of most uh, stable and functional foot would be the amputation of the, at the level of the uh, metatarsals um, because it leaves a, um, a kind of more functional foot that has less uh, high, uh, less um, increased pressure points, so less breakdown um, potential in the future. So that amputation I keep referring to is called the transmetatarsal amputation. Um, it's uh, the whole goal is um, to leave a, a uh, functional, like I said, weight-bearing foot. Um, the amputation of all the toes at the level of the metatarsal, so the, the bones behind the toes, um, it leaves a functional foot for ambulation. The goal is to preserve as much length, as, as much length of the foot or as, as possible. Um, the incision level is based on viable skin mar margins, and what we, the ideal kind of incision is the bottom skin, we want to leave that the longest because it's the thickest and the most durable, and having that kind of flap up um, to make the, uh, to close the incision will give the most kind of protection and the um, durability of the, of the uh, amputation. Um, this type of uh, amputation can um, be um, fitted with a custom shoe and then a, what's called a, a, a spacer or filler at the end of the toe, or at the end of the shoe, which helps um, the shoe from or the foot from pistoning in the shoe, so you get less uh, friction um, pressure and uh, less pressure to to kind of uh, decrease the amount of um, or the incidence of ulcers. Another um, amputation of the foot is called the show parts amputation, and this is an amputation at the of the the front of the foot or the forefoot at the level of um, the calcaneus, which is the heel bone, and the bone right before that. Um, in the bottom left, it's the cuboid, it's called, and then um, as well as the the one of the bones of the ankle called the talus and the navicular bone, which is um, the blue line on the uh, on the uh, bottom left picture. It's called the trans uh, transverse tarsal joint or the show parts joint. This leaves a less functional um, foot, but does allow for um, weight-bearing and transfers. So this is an important um, amputation to really have in, in the surgeon's pocket, because if, uh, especially if, they are, if a patient already has an amputation on the other side of below the leg or below the knee or a foot amputation on the other side, um, allowing someone the ability to transfer is a very, um, can, can really free them from um, always having to have assistance and um, things like that. 
Um, this, uh, like I said, um, it preserves weight bearing through the heel, and the heel pad is a very functional or um, thick uh, part of the, the skin, which um, allows um, some pressure relief. Um, <clears throat> the amputation that far back, the reason it's less desirable is because you lose a lot of the, or all of the uh, muscle attachments or the tendon attachments on the top of the foot. So a goal for, for our end on surgery is to transfer some of those muscles so you can still control the foot to move up and down. Um, this cannot really be, uh, this type of amputation can't really be controlled by just the shoe and an insert. It actually needs what's called an ankle foot orthoses um, to really help um, the foot from um, pointing down and then causing a really high um, pressure point. Um, uh, the next level of amputation um, is below the knee amputation, and it's um, the um, on the right, and it's um, necessary when a foot is not salvageable, uh, meaning that either there's too much um, tissue loss from infection or bone loss from infection. Um, the goal of a below-the-knee amputation is to leave a long enough um, length for, of tissue behind the leg to give a nice fat pad and then a long enough um, um, amputation length so you can so they can fit into a prosthetic and, and use a prosthetic. Um, another kind of complication I would like to uh, briefly touch on is called Charcot arthropathy. Um, so this is a um, progressive condition of the musculoskeletal system um, in patients with neuropathy, any type of neuropathy, whether it's from um, uh, diabetics or, or in the diabetics or chronic alcohol use. Or, um, uh, this was actually first uh, noted in people with syphilis. Um, and it's characterized by joint destruction and dislocation and uh, pathological fractures and major uh, deformity. Um, diabetes is the uh, most common etiology, um, and it results in a, a progressive uh, destruction of bones at weight-bearing joints. So this can happen anywhere in the body, but weight-bearing joints, um, especially of the foot and ankle, um, are the highest kind of prevalence. Um, it occurs with minimal or no trauma. Um, the initially, people notice um, a lot of swelling, um, redness of the foot, and um, increased warmth, and, uh, and um, people think that it could be an infection, actually. It's really commonly um, mistaken for an infection. Um, after this process keeps going, um, you have, like, the photo and the x-ray. Um, you have the what's called the classic rocker bottom uh, foot type, which is a really prominent part of the bottom of the foot, and it's bones that and joints that... that um, kind of became soft, and then when they reconsolidated or got or hardened back up, um, there's a, just a big deformity. Um, so the main kind of stay of, of treatment for this type of um, process is the earliest um, recognition is, and, and keeping complete weight off of the foot is uh, key, because if you can see this and know what it is uh, right when it starts and then stop putting weight on it, and then actually doing the total contact cast or a cast of the leg, um, it'll help kind of decrease the pressure on the foot and then also decrease the chance for a deformity to occur. Um, after um, 
you're seeing multiple times and many x-rays are taken and once the bones are hardened um, and ready to start walking on again, you get um, pe- people um, get what's called a crow walker, which is a custom-molded um, foot, wa- uh, foot and ankle brace, and they start walking protected in that. And then, um, then after um, a length of time of walking in the crow walker, uh, custom-molded shoes to prevent any um, ulcerations. Um, so another X-ray of a Charcot foot, a rocker bottom foot. And the deformity is there in the uh, midfoot where the two, those two red lines should meet up um, in a normal foot. And with this, you have an increased pressure point from the bone on the bottom of the foot. And that correlates with the ulcer of the, uh, on the photo. Um, once you have a deformity like this, um, anywhere, anything from um, surgery of going in and just kind of cutting out the... Uh, the bone that's prominent, um, all the way to a big uh, reconstruction of a foot with rods and pins, um, is a possibility. Um, so, a quick summary: so diabetes can um, uh, cause many complications of the whole body, and especially the foot and ankle. Um, preventing complications with uh, tight blood sugar control and continuous um, doctor visits is key. Um, diabetics should check their feet daily, kind of tops, bottoms, in between their toes. Check the, uh, the temperature of the water, not with your feet or with your hands, because losing sensation in feet and hands is very common. So a lot of times we say that to use the elbow, which is um, people laugh sometimes at me when I say that. <laughs> um, and really um, note um, any changes immediately to, any, to one of their physicians. Uh, another kind of thing to really look at is... Um, inside of their shoes because uh, things can fall in shoes and and people that don't feel anything can put their feet on and walk all day and then all of a sudden they come home and take their shoe off and they have a bloody sock and had no idea something was in there. Um, I think the the main thing is that ulcers and amputations are preventable um, but they're very common in uh, diabetic patients so I think prevention is definitely the key. Thank you very much. I just uh, celebrated my son's third birthday, and he he appreciates. Uh, he's really into um, super uh, superheroes, so we had a superhero party. And then my son on the other side, Jackson, just turned one. So, thank you very much. Questions? Podiatrists and and uh, foot and ankle orthopedists. Um, you know, the, the scope is very similar, um, but the orthopedist can, even though their, their specialty is foot and ankle, they can still treat the whole body. Um, the training is, is different where we go to four years of uh, podiatric medical school, and then we have a three-year residency after that, where an orthopedic surgeon um, goes to a four years of medical school, and then they go to um, their residency, which is a general uh, orthopedic residency, and then they go into their fellowship, um, kind of uh, focusing on uh, foot and ankle. Um, where um, you know we differ uh, is a, I think more uh, more podiatrists are very um, are seeing a lot more um, diabetic uh, foot and limb salvage um, than um, some. Um, Orthopedists, so our, a lot of uh, our focus, especially here at the um, county hospital, is um, our focus is limb salvage. 
Yeah, the, uh, briefly kind of sum the question. With an uh, increase in, in um, kind of younger uh, patients getting di diabetes, do we see a, an increase in, in younger patients with ulcers and amputations? Um, I mean, I think the process of neuropathy and things will onset quicker, but that doesn't mean it's going to onset when they're teenagers or, or so. Um, but we do see um, people in their 40s and, and 30s even, or late 30s, 40s, um, with ulcers, amputations, um, and a lot of systemic uh, whole body problems w associated with diabetes, which I think um, correlates with people being diagnosed or, or not diagnosed, but getting um, having diabetes as a younger age. Um, so my name is Arti Deshpande. Um, I am a certified orthotist and prosthetist. So that's what the CPO stands for, certified prosthetist and orthotist. And I work as a clinical manager at the San Francisco uh, General Hospital in the UCSF Orthotic and Prosthetic Center. Um, so I know initially my topic was care of the diabetic amputee, but I've, I've changed that slightly to make it care of the diabetic patient because we are going to talk about some care um, before the amputation happens. Dr. Dini and Dr. Parks have kind of spoken in much detail about diabetes and uh, the statistics, so we're not going to go over all this too much in detail. Um, but just to give you a brief overview, um, it is a, diabetes is a problem uh, with your body that causes the blood glucose levels to rise higher than normal. Um, diabetes type 1 is usually diagnosed in children, um, and diabetes type 2 is where, again, your body does not use insulin properly, um, where you're insulin resistant, um, and it is more common form of diabetes that we see. The diabetic foot is what we're talking about today. Um, the two major complications that we've seen on the diabetic foot are um, the nerve damage or the uh, neuropathy and poor blood circulation. So um, it, it is a major concern. Diabetic foot has become a major concern um, and is a very common cause of hospitalization um, at this time. Most foot problems arise from these two major complications. Uh, the lack of feeling to your foot and a proper blood flow um, can allow small blisters to progress into a serious infection in just a matter of days. Uh, chronic nerve damage and neuropathy can cause dryness, um, cracked skin, which can provide the opportunity for bacteria to enter your body and cause infection. So um, the consequences, obviously, as you've seen before, can, cause, can basically range from hospitalization to amputation of a toe, foot, or an entire leg. S daily inspection of the feet is very essential. Um, we'll talk a little bit more in detail about diabetic foot care. Diabetic foot care requirements. Um, so if you are diabetic and you have foot problems because of diabetes, um, diabetic footwear can be prescribed to you. Um, what we need is an appropriate prescription from your podiatrist and or your primary care physician. Uh, the certifying statement 
from your primary care physician stating that you are diabetic and that you meet certain criteria. And we'll talk about this in more detail. Mostly Medicare, Medi-Cal, and most insurances will cover one pair of diabetic shoes and diabetic inserts in one year. Now, this is not just because you're diabetic, but you have to meet this criteria. The certifying uh, certification of medical necessity is what we call it, is if you have at least one or more of these conditions. So foot ulcer, uh, previous amputation of the other foot, either a toe or partial foot or higher up, due to a microvascular disease secondary to diabetes, uh, history of previous ulceration or more you know, consistent recurring problems in the foot, peripheral neuropathy with evidence of callus formation on either foot, there could be deformity of either foot, um, like these guys spoke about the rocker bottom or the Charcot foot. Uh, there could be documentation of compromised vascular disease, again, lack of blood supply, uh, and a positive uh, monofilament examination indicating diabetic neuropathy. Custom shoe or custom foot orthotic or custom insert, um, the requirement would be at least one criteria out of these three needs to be met. Um, so you should have diabetes with a neurological manifestation or with peripheral circulatory dis disorders or with any kind of disorders that could lead to amputation or ulceration. Um, these are just some pictures of diabetic shoes, and I put them on there because most people, um, when they think of a diabetic shoe, think of an ugly, black, clunky you know, shoe. And that's not what diabetic shoes are. There are decent-looking, good functional shoes. You will still not get the, you know, the top of the fashion shoe for diabetes, but um, these are decent-looking shoes that you can actually get in different formats, like walking shoes or tennis shoes, um, even some form of sandals if your foot condition permits that. Certain additional features that uh, are a part of the diabetic shoes could be the Velcro closure for people with hand dexterity issues or hand problems. High top, where you need a little bit more ankle stability in, you know, with the addition of having foot problems, you could be having some ankle instability issues. Um, these shoes here, the stretchable for bunion or hammer toes. So if you see the top of this shoe has lycra, it kind of stretches with your foot. The sides have slits. I'm not sure if it's very visible, but there are slits. So people with bunions, it kind of stretches for you. So it's not pushing against that high pressure point within your foot. Um, and then the edema shoes are complete lycra shoes. So they, um, as you have swelling in your feet, the shoes will actually stretch. So they're not, again, pushing on your foot or your foot doesn't feel like it's stuck in that shoe. Um, so these are just some of the additional features um, within the shoe. What I want to discuss more is also diabetic shoe characteristics. So how is the diabetic shoe different from your regular shoe, or what is different about it? Um, material. A good diabetic shoe uh, will be flexible enough to fit as the day progresses. So there will be some give depending on what your foot needs or what your foot demands. Um, it could be either a softer leather or it could be mesh or lycra fabric. Um, that could be the best option for your, for your situation. The toe box. So while you know narrow shoes 
pointed shoes might be fashionable. Um, they, they could cut off your circulation. They could actually accentuate deformities within the foot. So um, the right shoe, the right diabetic shoe, should have a long enough toe box to have at least a finger or a thumb width after the end of your toes, um, between the end of your toe and the shoe. So you should have that kind of space within the shoe. It should also be wide enough to allow for wiggle room so it's not pushing against the side of your foot. The shoe width is important. So diabetic shoes actually come in various different widths. Uh, Mostly just regular shoes that you get in the market are just a standard width. But diabetic shoes will have the option of having standard or the medium, wide, extra wide. And for people who have super wide shoes, they go as high as like 10E, 16E width in the diabetic shoes. Um, So that is something that you should consider. If you, um, not all shoes go super wide, so you may not find the appropriate shoe, but function would be more important. So find a shoe that actually suits your foot rather than just looks good or you know, just feels good. Um, The next is seamless lining. So um, diabetic shoes all come with an interior soft fabric or nylon lining that is completely seam-free. So you shouldn't feel any rubbing inside the shoe. Um, The right shoes will also have the extra depth within the shoe. When What we mean by depth is within the shoe, there will be multiple spacer um, space to be able to take the original spacer out of the shoe and put your diabetic custom insert if you need that inside the shoe. Um, You may or may not need it, but there's always room to adjust the the space within the shoe. And then rocker bottoms. So the right shoes um, will have that kind of rocker that will help you roll over your foot much easier um, and kind of propel forward without having any problems. It reduces the the stress that comes on your sensitive um, skin of the foot, in this case. The diabetic inserts that go within the diabetic shoes, uh, there's two major categories within them. Uh, The -the off-the-shelf are the ones that come with the shoes. These are still heat moldable, so we can actually put them in the oven, heat them, and we can shape them according to your foot shape. Um, They provide cushion, they reduce the impact on your foot, on your feet. Um, And then the custom orthotics, which are actually custom made for you. So we take impression of your feet and um, these are formed or made for your foot specifically. What it does is it redistributes the plantar pressures of your foot. So you're not people, for example, somebody with a high arch, might be just taking all the pressure on the heel and the toes and not feeling anything in between. So when the orthotic is made in such a way that it, it will redistribute and spread it all over the plantar aspect of the foot. Um, and it takes off the pressure off of the uh, pressure-sensitive areas or the pre-ulcerative areas. Um, again, um, both these doctors have spoken much in detail about the foot ulcer. So these are some of the factors that we commonly see that lead to chronic foot ulcers and eventually to amputations uh, is neuropathy, blood circulation, the charcoal foot, gangrene, and infections. Um, most of these statistics Dr. Parks spoke about, I'll just briefly go over that. 
Um, uh, the diabetic foot ulcer is an open sore uh, or a wound that occurs in approximately 15% of patients with diabetes and is commonly located on the bottom of the foot. It could be on the heel, on the toes, on the metatarsal heads. Of those with the foot ulcer, 6% will be hospitalized due to infection or other complications. Um, diabetes is the leading cause of non-traumatic lower extremity amputations in this country and approximately up to 24% of patients will def, uh, who have a foot ulcer will require an amputation at some point. Uh, the foot ulceration precedes 85% of diabetes-related amputations. So what are our orthotic options for wound care? So, you know, we've tried to prevent wounds as much as possible by using the correct kind of diabetic shoes and inserts, um, but you still develop a wound. Um, what are our goals with these orthotics? Our major goals are weight distribution, so taking the pressure or redistributing the pressure all over your feet, offloading the specific pressure-sensitive areas, uh, any contracture prevention or deformity or stiffness, and appropriate alignment, so aligning your foot to make sure it's not falling out or in. So wound healing of the foot. Um, these are just two basic kind of shoes that have been shown. These are special shoes. So if you see the shoe on your left, uh, it doesn't have the toe portion. So you're practically walking on the heel of the foot. This is called a forefoot offloading shoe, uh, which is used if you have a ulcer in the front of your foot or in the front half of your foot. Um, and the hind foot offloading is the reverse principle, where you're walking just on the toes and um, the heel is completely off the floor. Um, so there is complete offloading or taking the weight off in the area where the pressure or the ulcer is. Um, the negatives for both of these kind of shoes is balance and stability can be an issue. So it's not normal walking. You're walking just on your heel or just on your toes. And patient compliance, meaning you really have to understand how to walk with these feet. You cannot just get up and get going. You could actually fall and hurt yourself. So that's, that's a consideration. Um, the other is the pressure relief shoe with a special insert. Um, the advantages of this is obviously it has the entire sole and uh, it provides really good support and stability for the foot. It has a good rocker, so it allows you to roll forward easily on that foot. Uh, it comes with open and toe closed, uh, open and closed toe options, and there's instant adjustability. So this is the kind of insert that it comes with. It has these tiny pegs that you can actually take off, um, so it kind of creates a hollow spot right where the ulcer is, and that uh, takes the pressure off. The only drawback is durability of the shoe and the insert becomes an issue for long-term users. So we've, if you would need to use this shoe for, say, two, three months or longer, the durability could be an issue. It's not a long-term uh, solution. Um, Multipodus boot is um, kind of a splint that goes under your foot and the back of your calf. It prevents ulcers while in bed. This is not a walking brace. This is more like ulcer prevention in bed only. Sufficiently padded with lamb's wool. Uh, there's a bar in the back, so if you're bedridden um, and you want to prevent an ulcer in bed, it actually prevents, it realigns your foot and ankle, so it prevents your foot from falling in the wrong position. Um, the bar in the back is to prevent the foot from falling sideways on your bed. 
um, and prevents contracture, which basically means tightness of the muscles. So your ankle's not dropping down or your foot's not dropping down or, you know, staying up. And there's uh, minimal ambulation, which means there's an actual sole that comes with it. So if you need to take a few steps to go to the restroom from your bed, um, that is fine. It just doesn't have extensive walking possibility on it. This is another kind of brace that we use for uh, ulcer healing or protection, uh, which is called the PFS. It's an immediate post-operative measure. So if, if someone's had an amputation, um, we use this to prevent contractures or tightness. So it holds the foot and ankle in that 90 degrees position and prevents the foot from dropping down. Um, it provides support while uh, if you know someone has a fracture or an amputation. It is easily bendable, so it can be contoured to the requirement. Um, and it's easy access if there's like drains or tubes attached to the foot. It doesn't have one of those kick kickstands that was in the previous picture that you saw. And in the crow, which is if you have a Charcot foot, uh, this is a Charcot Restrained Orthotic Walker. It's used for Charcot uh, neuropathy. It comes with an, a posterior and an anterior shell. So it goes uh, on the foot and up to your calf. And it comes with like a clam shell. It's, it's a, like a turtle shell, um, which overlap and provides total contact up to your calf. It is completely padded with an insert for possible adjustments. So if you have to tighten it or loosen it, that's possible. There is a heel and sole rocker bottom that helps walking because you're, you're functionally locking the ankle in that 90 degrees position to prevent any further deformity um, and prevent progress, uh, prevent the charcoal from progressing. So the rocker helps again rolling forward easier. Um, the negatives would be difficult for volume adjustments. So if there's substantial swelling on and off, that would be a little difficult to manage within the boot. Um, and it could need regular adjustments depending on the condition of the foot, so depending on changes on the foot. And then I'm going to talk a little bit about prosthetic options um, for these um, low-level foot amputations that Dr. Parks talked about. So the, what are our prosthetic goals uh, with the diabetic population? It is to minimize the likelihood of these ulcerations. So even after you've had an amputation, if there's any chances of ulceration, how do we prevent that from happening or from this, uh, for the skin from breaking down? Um, to restore any effective foot length. So in cases of partial foot amputation or just you know toe amputation, how do we restore that foot length? Um, artificially kind of, um, reduce the pressure on sensitive distal end of the residual limb. So whatever is left, we want to make sure that doesn't get excessive pressure now. And to again redistribute the body weight, either you know through the rest of the portion of the foot or proximal, that meaning closer upward to the body. Uh, so in cases of transmetatarsal amputation, which is um, through the middle midfoot, um, what we do is we do partial foot inserts. So if you see the top picture, um, it's an actual diabetic insert with filler. So depending on whether the toe is gone or the all the toes are gone, we provide a filler to take up that room within the shoe. Um, it provides arch support and good foot alignment can be maintained. 
the carbon footplate um, that come in different sizes and different um, shapes and different contours actually help with uh, easy rollover again. So you're missing the toes. So when the foot actually tries to propel forward, there's no toes to do that. That could cause excessive pressure on where you've had the amputation. In order to prevent that, you need some kind of uh, a foot plate to take up that to take up that force. Um, the only drawback is these foot plates are not covered by insurances, so it could be um, out of pocket expense for certain patients. Uh, the next level of amputation would be the Lisfranc or the Chopart amputation. Again, we might have to go up higher. We still have to do the the um, orthotic or the insert with the filler to fill the remain fill the part of the shoe where the remaining of the foot was. Uh, but we might have to go more proximal or upward in order to take the weight upward and not have the entire pressure on a small portion of the remaining foot. Um, the carbon AFO that's shown in the picture actually allows easy forward propulsion without putting too much stress on that foot. Um, it can be easily fitted with any kind of existing shoes or any diabetic shoes that you have. Um, Basic post-operative care. So if, you're, if uh, a patient happens to have an amputation higher up than the foot um, in terms of transtibial, which is the below the knee, which could be anywhere between your knee joint and your ankle joint, um, what are the things that we look for or we need to be careful about? Is bed positioning immediately post-operative? We need to make sure that the patient is not on the bed in one position for too long causing uh, ulcers. So I also encourage different sleeping positions in order to prevent tightness or contracture. Um, wound care and keep the sutures really clean and dry uh, to help them heal better and faster. Uh, the limb protection is important using a shrinker sock, which we'll discuss a little bit uh, in the next couple of slides, to reduce the swelling and pain, and then a limb guard to protect the residual limb. So um, skin management is an important aspect here, where the skin above the suture line needs to be kept clean and dry, um, moisturizing it daily when applicable. Um, daily monitoring for any signs of infection, redness, uh, drainage is really important, um, especially when there is lack of sensation. So this needs to be done by the patient, by the nursing staff, and everyone else who is actually seeing this patient every day. Uh, prosthetic considerations uh, for a diabetic amputee, we have three major factors we're looking at. Uh, one is prevention of edema or swelling. So we don't want that limb to be fluctuating in volume every day or even throughout the day. Uh, protection of residual limb and volume management, a proper fit within the prosthesis. So for uh, maintaining the volume or for um, preventing edema of the residual limb, we use a stump shrinker. So in this case, uh, it's an above-the-knee amputee. Uh, it's a sock that basically it's like a compression sock or a compression hose. And it comes with a, a waist attachment for someone who's had an amputation above the knee. For someone who's had an amputation below the knee, um, like you see in the picture on the right, it's just something that goes above the knee up to the thigh portion. So it's, it's to... Pre it's to bring all that swelling down. Swelling is very normal um, in 
you know, when you have an amputation and when you have surgery. So to prevent that, we need to use this shrinker sock. And it also reduces stump sensitivity. Socket interface. So when between the residual limb and the prosthesis, we need to have a good socket interface. Uh, the socket interface, like you see in this picture, is something that you roll on on the residual limb. It could be a cushion or a locking gel liner or a gel sock, which is rolled on. It provides cushion for the skin against pressures. Um, it also protects the skin because within a prosthesis, there could be some movement, there could be some pistoning. In order to prevent that, um, um, this interface really helps. And then volume management. So you see immediate post-operative how the residual limb looks. And eventually, uh, within the first six months to a year, it kind of shrinks down. Um, so we need to kind of manage that with maybe using different socks, um, you, you know, using the shrinker. So different factors that affect volume management could be um, diet, alcohol, weight gain, weight loss, activity, medication, salt intake, water, and this just needs to be managed either with socks uh, or with certain padding that can be provided within the prosthesis. Um, that's pretty much all I had, so if you have any questions, I'll be happy to answer them. Yes. So answering your question about whether amputation might be a good choice for certain patients, um, it's a decision that is, needs to be made by a multidisciplinary approach. One thing I would like to mention in this regard is, um, I know last year I spoke about all the innovations and the high technology in prosthesis, but it's not always that glossy. This is probably where it kind of starts with, you know, what are the infections, what are the complications? Um, in certain cases, yes. A lot of people go through a lot of complications and problems for a long period of time, sometimes over months and years. And to live that way, compromising on your way of life, your standard of living, might not be the best approach. Um, our way of handling it or our approach to this is through the functional limb service, where we actually sit with this patient as a team, with the uh, podiatrist there, with the orthopedic surgeon, with the physiatrist, physical therapist, prosthetist, the caseworker. Uh, one more person that adds to uh, Dr. Dini's list is an actual patient himself, an actual patient who's gone through an amputation and is currently using a prosthesis. Because we here can tell you all we want all day long, but it's, it, it's, not, it's more realistic when another patient tells the same thing about, um, you know, more realistic uh, expectations of good and bad. There might be certain things that you could never have thought about, like how do you get up in the middle of the night and go to the restroom? Um, but there might be positives. So we do a peer counseling. We also have a support group within Zuckerberg San Francisco General Hospital that we meet once a, once a month. Uh, on a scheduled day, and I think that's the best approach. I think, um, you know, even going, there are a lot of patients who go through a lot of psychological problems because of an amputation, even before the amputation, going through other health issues, um, managing that. So I think, I think a multidisciplinary approach, including a peer support, is an essential aspect of that decision making. Yes. What happens is with diabetes the, and other vascular issues too, 
what gets affected is mostly peripheral, meaning away from your body. So your extremities and more the end of your extremities are affected first, and it eventually comes up higher. So the complications are more towards the peripheral first. And that's why um, you, you don't see as much hand complications, again, within the peripheries as well, just because it's not a weight-bearing issue. Um, with feet, because you're on your feet all the time, you're weight-bearing, um, lack of sensitivity, and there are other factors, like you, know, you're, you, you wear shoes all the time. You could wear a wrong shoe for you know, just a few days and cause a complication just from that. So uh, the, the rate of complication is definitely much higher with lower extremity than it is with upper. And that's probably why we did, decided not to talk about it as much. So um, essentially your question is if you have neuropathy and you had a good functional foot, would walking and exercise hurt you? Um, I don't know if you guys want to answer that. I wouldn't think so. Uh, if you obviously from an orthotist perspective, if you had the correct footwear, definitely that is a big thing. And if you monitored your foot. But I don't know if you want to add to that. I think I, I would certainly echo what she said. Um, I don't think it's going to help improve things. Uh, I think thinking of neuropathy as a sequelae of high blood sugars is more important. So if you want to prevent complications, um, having better sugar control can actually somewhat reverse some of the neuropathy that's occurring. But walking on its own won't prevent, cure, or treat it. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.